we were pushing ourselves past the brink of exhaustion and it was a brute force effort. We didn't really know what we were doing, but we knew that we couldn't slow down and take a breath and really reflect on our vision or our strategy. We were just building furiously to try to get to the next step without really thinking about the long-term view of the business. What is this category that we're trying to go after? How are we going to be competitively advantaged? Welcome to Secret Leaders from Infamous Media. I'm Dan Murray-Serta, and you're listening to the UK Startup Podcast, where you can learn from entrepreneurs at the very top of their game. Today, I'm talking to Howie Liu, the co-founder of multi-billion dollar tech juggernaut Airtable, which is a low-code, relational spreadsheet and database platform. Now, if that doesn't mean much to you, it was originally seen as a database on steroids and an Excel killer, although that's far too simplistic, and Howie will explain it better. It's grown like the cloud since being founded almost 10 years ago, recently getting valued at just $5.7 billion. Howie has built a category-defining piece of software with an amazing story that goes from homebrew startup all the way to Silicon Valley darling. But let's hear the scrappy homebrew stuff first after a quick stop right at the beginning. I grew up in a smallish town in Texas, uh, here in the States. You know, it was a quiet childhood. I got a lot of time to myself to read books and once we got our uh, family computer to explore, you know, using a computer, the internet. And uh, at some point, uh, my dad had purchased a, uh, a book to teach himself how to program. It was a C++ uh, book and never actually read it, but I did uh, one summer when I had lots of time on my hands. And so, you know, began programming and, and learning how to build uh, apps at that point. So both my parents were immigrants to this country. Um, they came over, my dad was uh, doing a PhD when he first came over in biochemistry eventually became a postdoc and then uh, took a research job in the area. And then my mom actually came over and uh, despite having an engineering degree from uh, China, I'm actually Korean, but it's a longer story, you know, came over and, and basically had to work uh, minimum wage shops for many years when she first came here, eventually getting a, uh, a second degree from the local university and then, and then was able to, to find uh, you know, white collar jobs. Got it. What was your first job? I was a lifeguard in high school. So it turned out it was a, a great way to multitask, you know, making a little money uh, and getting a tan on the side. But I, I enjoyed uh, definitely the, those summers uh, as a lifeguard. Okay, so uh, from lifeguard to, I believe you worked at Accenture, right? Or you almost worked at Accenture. So actually, let's, let's just go before we get to that moment. What jobs did you hold from lifeguard to job offer at Accenture? What does that trajectory look like just for other lifeguards listening? <laughs> I feel very fortunate in that despite coming from a very, you know, modest financial background, my parents always made sure I didn't have to go and, you know, work while I was in college. So I took summer internships, which were great for building experience. Um, but I was able to mostly focus on my studies and then in the free time I had go in and learn how to program, come up with different ideas and, you know, explore the idea of, um, you know, building a, a tech company. But the summer uh, jobs that I had uh, ranged from you know, working at a, a local barbecue restaurant in Raleigh, Durham, uh, where, uh, where my school was based. Uh, that was fun. Basically helped think about, uh, franchising the, this restaurant, created brochures, uh, to help sell, uh, potential entrepreneurs on, on the merits of opening up one of these Q shack, uh, franchises. You know, another one was, uh, going and doing consulting work with a nonprofit in Boston, basically helping them think through their, their model. And then the, probably the most formative one was going to work for a startup. Uh, north of Manhattan uh, in New York, and really getting to see firsthand for the first time what it was like to build a tech company. This was a um, a small ad tech startup called Mindset Media. They were trying to uh, create a psychographic targeting ad network. And I basically showed up one day 
and you know, literally just did all the odds and ends of, of work that didn't have an official job title to it. So at some point they learned that I could uh, actually program a little bit and I started, started building internal tools um, for the company. And that actually turned out to be a little bit prescient of my like, future Airtable experience. So legend has it that uh, you're one of those guys that made that sliding doors life moment where offered a job at Accenture, which obviously a lot of people around the world actually work pretty hard to get into the position to get that job at one of the big consulting firms, etc. And then you didn't turn up to day one of your job. So uh, you could have been that very exciting consultant that you dreamt of being, but instead all you're doing is running this incredibly successful startup. You must be really annoyed with your life's decisions, but what happened? Yeah, I mean, truth be told, it, it was a very harrowing decision. Um, you know, coming out of college, my now co-founder, Andrew, who I was friends with at the time at college, you know, had gotten me this interview with Accenture Tech Labs, which was specifically a, um, a smaller group within the larger you know, consulting firm that specialized in partnering with other tech companies, even startups sometimes, to build prototypes of apps, basically. And so it was a really cool job, a really uh, great opportunity. And for me, coming out of school, this would have been, you know, something uh, really meaningful, aligned with my interests, paid really well. And, you know, coming from, from the background that I did, it was quite uh, the dilemma to think about, you know, whether I should go and pursue my dreams of, of actually taking the leap and starting my own company, but potentially going nowhere and, and burning through all my savings, what little I had, or taking this, this pretty great job, actually, and getting to work with my friend, um, you know, and, and uh, work on a, a really interesting set of projects. And so I, I was pretty indecisive about this until weeks went by and finally days went by and, you know, it was the, the very first day of work. And, you know, I realized that I had just not you know, made a decision despite it being the, the day I was supposed to show up to the office. And so at that moment, I actually got a call from the recruiter and, you know, was asked, am I showing up? Am I okay? And it was in that, that split second decision where, you know, I just committed to taking the plunge and, and uh, not showing up to work ever and going in and trying my hand at, at building a company of my own. What were your parents like when you told them that you did that? You know, my parents were, were always incredibly supportive of, of uh, especially the entrepreneurial path that I wanted to take. So, you know, I don't remember if I even shared with them the, the specific story of how I just didn't show up to work. Uh, they, maybe they would have been a little bit more mortified had they heard that detail. But when they heard I, I was um, you know, going to take the plunge, they were very supportive. You know, actually helped uh, loan me a little bit of money to get me started and you know, cover the, the ramen diet for the first uh, few months of the company, at least. Good. Okay, fine. So you're in San Francisco. You're living on, on ramen, of course, because um, who isn't? You get to work on, on a startup, but was that Airtable or was there a life before Airtable? This was, yeah, this was actually a, a short-lived company before Airtable called eTacts, like contacts with an E. The idea for that actually came from my personal experience moving out to San Francisco, not knowing that many people and wanting to go out and network and, and meet other entrepreneurs, meet operators, uh, meet investors. And I wanted basically a personal CRM. I had briefly, you know, gotten exposure to CRM products at a summer job that I had in SF with, uh, with a different startup called Crowdflower. And, you know, there I'd done some business development and, and realized, you know, hey, I need to organize all my efforts here in some kind of CRM product. But then coming out of that job and, and basically trying to network for myself, realized I needed the same, but for me personally. And so the vision for that, that company was really to create a CRM product that was optimized for personal relationships. So being able to go and keep track of all the people you had met, see the last time you had spoken with them, maybe get LinkedIn and, and uh, you know, kind of Twitter updates, 
all ingested in line. Um, and so I teamed up with a different college friend of mine and set up to build that product. We basically worked furiously for a few weeks. Um, I think we ended up building a very rough around the edges prototype. Uh, it was some of the, the fastest coding uh, I think I've ever done in my life. And note to myself, uh, fast coding does not always translate into high quality products, but um, we hacked something together very, very quickly and basically applied to Y Combinator, which at the time was not a very well-known program. So I think maybe they had done a few years of, of uh, classes. There were probably less than, I want to say, 50 companies that had gone through the incubator at that point. But I had uh, stumbled upon it during college and just, you know, became enamored with this idea of, you know, having a community, having a family of other entrepreneurs who are all kind of trying to make it at the same time, getting access to the resources. At the time, Paul Graham was was very much uh, still the, the active leader of, of Y Combinator. And so we applied and, you know, through a stroke of luck, uh, got an interview. It was, you know, even at that time, I think quite competitive to even get a callback. And so we got to go in and, uh, and basically pitch uh, in person. And it was a, a pretty scary uh, interview. You got what felt like just a few minutes of time to go and demo your product, explain why you thought it would be successful. And then you basically came out of the room not knowing how you did, just like with a, a job interview. And we sat with, with great trepidation for, for the next few hours until also miraculously, we, we got a call back, uh, later that night and we're told that we had gotten into the program. So from there, we basically, uh, you know, went through a, a breakneck 10 weeks of, of YC where we were just coding and, and eventually launched the product, you know, met, uh, some great friends, uh, in the program along the way. And, you know, and then long story short, uh, ended up selling that company pretty early on in its life cycle in, uh, in less than a year, basically to Salesforce, where I then spent a year working, learning, and, and really kind of coming up with the idea for Airtable. What prompted you to sell at that time, right? Because obviously, if you go through something like Y Combinator, I imagine they also encourage you not to sell and to grow and become a billion dollar business and the rest, right? So what kind of mentoring and what kind of voices were around you at that time that led to those decisions? And, you know, on reflection, was it the right one for you? Are you, are you happy with how it went? And I'd, I'd love to just get inside that a little bit. For sure. Y Combinator has also evolved, um, you know, a bit over that time frame. So this was 2010, I think was our batch year. And I think at that time, the recommendation from YC was really to pursue whatever path made the most sense for each entrepreneur. And, and maybe that's still the case. Um, but I think, you know, it, it was actually seen as a success to go and, and even take an early exit for a company. Right. Um, and you know, very much was, was personally life-changing for myself and my co-founder Evan. You know, whereas I think now, especially since there are more case studies of multi-billion dollar, you know, YC successes, right? Whether it's Dropbox or Airbnb or Instacart, et cetera, I think there's more rational reason to kind of encourage entrepreneurs to swing really big for the kind of fences. But at the time, I think um, it didn't feel abnormal, you know, or like it was counter to the advice to take an exit. This was also a time, um, an era in, in Silicon Valley when I don't even think that a smaller exit was guaranteed. I think, you know, at that time, you know, to just make it in some way and not fail as a company uh, was actually a pretty big achievement. So it really came down to realizing that I had so much more to learn, you know, before I could build the company of my dreams. You know, we, we had kind of felt like the entire process of founding that company, Etax, was, was quite haphazard. And we were really just kind of learning everything as we went along. And the truth is, I think that's still the case today with Airtable. I still feel like I'm, I'm learning every day of the journey, but especially so then, you know, we just felt very woefully ill-prepared to go and try to build a larger and more ambitious company from the, the starting point that we had uh, set out with. 
And when a few acquisition offers did come around, uh, including Salesforce, um, we felt like they would be great learning opportunities. I personally actually really wanted to learn about the whole B2B world, you know, SaaS, cloud, software. And I felt like that was a, you know, an a- area where it was harder to just intuit your way into becoming an expert, right? On B2B software or on enterprise, you know, maybe with consumer products, you could go and just intuit the next Snapchat or TikTok or, you know, whatever, you know, have you. But with B2B software, which for some reason, I, I just had a natural interest towards something about creating tangible utility instead of having to guess and, you know, try to anticipate, you know, what would become super viral and, and what, you know, the world needed in terms of a new consumer experience. Um, it felt much more logical to go and build some kind of platform, some kind of product that would create this tangible value for businesses and for teams. So I was kind of drawn, especially towards Salesforce and, and the learning opportunities that, that we would have there. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. I wonder, you know, how much of your ability to build a giant business like Airtable was created by the freedom enabled to, you know, to not be on a ramen diet immediately and to have had a meaningful exit to you, right? To have the ability to live in one of the most expensive cities in the world with some economic freedom, with some pressures off you, some confidence as well. I mean, I just love to know, like, if you've reflected on on psychologically the difference of, of doing it a second time round and having, a, you know, a notch, so to speak, on the bedpost behind you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the biggest uh, thing that the acquisition bought for me was the luxury of time and patience. With the first company, with Etax, it really felt like, you know, I was doggy paddling in, you know, in the ocean, didn't know how to swim and just exerting so much energy just to, to keep my head above the water. 
we were sprinting at this breakneck pace, uh, literally fully, you know, all nighters sometimes, uh, sleeping on air beds, you know, initially at my co-founder and I's, uh, respective houses, um, we would, you know, work throughout the day, work into the, the wee hours of the night and then just crash at each other's houses, exhausted. And then, you know, even once we got a small office for that, we, we, this probably violated some zoning regulations, but we, we would sometimes crash in that, you know, tiny, uh, commercial office as well. We were pushing ourselves, I would say past the brink of exhaustion. I mean, and it was a brute force effort. We didn't really know what we were doing. But we knew that we couldn't slow down and take a breath and really reflect on our vision or our strategy. And so, you know, we were just building furiously to try to get to the next step without really thinking about the long-term view of the business. What is this category that we're trying to go after? How are we going to be competitively advantaged against the other potential players? Should we validate this, this product? How do we even go and build, you know, a revenue engine at some point? We just, we were never able to think more than one or two steps ahead in that chess game. Whereas I think coming out of Salesforce, you know, I had uh, a lot of patience. I had more time. I mean, I literally had just the financial runway to be able to think about what I wanted to build over the course of months or even years, rather than having to jump right into it and, and then kind of flesh out the plan as I went along. And so I think it was, it was also a very special time for me personally, because I don't feel like I had ever had a chance to go and, and sort of take a sabbatical, which I did after leaving Salesforce and, you know, for roughly a year, just went off and, and, uh, learned a lot about product design of all kinds, including not just software design, but really wanted to become holistically invested into, um, you know, design of industrial products, design of architecture, you know, and wanted to take that design skill set and apply it to my, my next, uh, entrepreneurial endeavor. It also gave me, I think the time to really think about the culture of, of a company that I would want to build. Right. And thinking about what are, what are the types of people that I want to work with. And that led me actually to, to, uh, being able to partner with my now co-founder, Andrew, who I'd always wanted to work with, but, you know, timing just worked out since I had the luxury of, of, uh, patience and, you know, was able to wait until, you know, he was able to leave his job at Google to partner with me on this company. I think it's so interesting because it's the one, it's sort of an obvious thing, but it's the one thing that doesn't get brought up a lot in startup world ever, which is the word patience. And as I understand it, you know, having done, uh, you know, a lot of reading, also being a customer of yours for many years myself, I know that that's a big part of your culture, right? It's a big part of, uh, of, of making sure that you're making the right decisions, not all about rushing to ship product all the time, ship features. And I think in just this example, but also any example, really, like uh, there's what John Hegarty, one of the advertising greats, called, you know, zig and zag. So when everyone else zigs, you zag. So what is the opposite of what everyone is doing right now is also quite possibly as legitimate as what everyone is doing. And I think it's great to hear sort of the founding reasons why that's part of your culture as well. Yeah, and I think it, it is something that has evolved. Um, you know, I think there's a, a tired place to be slow. And then sometimes you have to be fast. Um, so, you know, I think with one-way doors, so with decisions that you can't reverse, something as uh, committal as deciding the fundamental layout of the product. We bet early on on, you know, making Airtable a true relational database, right? So that the data model underneath it is not a spreadsheet. It's not, you know, tasks, it's a relational database. That was a one-way door, right? If we made the decision incorrectly, it would be really hard to go back and re-architect the product years down the road. So that is something that we spent, you know, a lot of time thinking about, and then ultimately a lot of time to build out. I mean, we spent almost two and a half years building the product before even launching it publicly. However, I think now we've realized that sometimes the best way to make the right decision 
is to go and just put something out there into the world. So we're trying to increase our feature shipping velocity. We actually want to ship more. And especially if we can get alpha or beta customer feedback, sometimes that gives us the ability to iterate and, and get the ideal you know, product out there quicker. So with a lot of our new feature service areas, you know, we've built things like automations into the product or you know, new types of Airtable applications that power up use cases. We try now to put those out there as quickly as possible and then you know, um, finesse them as we get more and more feedback. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And when I first heard about Airtable was, I mean, a long time ago, like five, maybe six, seven years ago, but I was in, literally in San Francisco at the time. And people were trying to explain it to me and I, they weren't doing a great job of it. And I found it extremely complicated as well to understand what they were talking about. And then someone just took out their laptop and just showed me. And I was like, oh, that's sick. That's so cool. You know, and it's very much a, once someone shows you, you're like, wow, how amazing. But they were super struggling to explain it. And I was really struggling to understand it. I think that's one of the most interesting things to me about Airtable is I saw it like quite early on, but not so early that it wasn't already like a good looking product that worked, right? So I'd love to know about this early, early period because that that sounds hard to solve. Yeah, I mean, I'll start there. I mean, I think to spend two and a half years building your MVP is quite atypical, right? And, you know, unlike uh, Elon Musk with Tesla or SpaceX, we don't even have the excuse of being able to say, well, we, we had to go and, and build, you know, literally a spaceship from scratch, right? And the downside risk was, was it blowing up? I think for us, though, it did matter that we built a product that was not just incremental, you know, over the status quo. It had to be, you know, significantly better than the other options, whether it was using an existing project management tool, like a Trello, for instance, or, you know, even using spreadsheets. I mean, if you think about Excel and Google Sheets, they're actually quite powerful products that have decades you know, probably millions of, of uh, engineering hours that have gone into them. And to compete against that, like, is, is really tough. You know, you can't build a product that is much worse than, than spreadsheets in many regards. I think the, the MVP for us was a higher hurdle to cross. I mean, we wanted to build a product that was as easy to use as a spreadsheet, as intuitive, as fast, as flexible, and had even a lot of the same shortcuts, right? You know, you can use all the same keyboard shortcuts, up, down, left, right, you know, the cut, the copy, the paste, and even selecting and, and uh, overriding ranges and, and so on. Um, we wanted to make all of that as fast and as fluid as possible, but then also, you know, have all of these, you know, relational database or app platform like, you know, features on top of Airtable. And so ultimately you could build something that was much more app-like um, to manage workflows. For instance, you know, if you have a pipeline for, for your content uh, ideas uh, for this podcast, you, know, you could manage that in Airtable more effectively because of this structure. You could put, you know, attachments into Airtable, have field types, be able to create different linked tables. So you could have a guests table that's linked to an ideas or, or a podcast episodes table. And so we had to go and not only, you know, match the existing prior art in certain regards, but then also beat it in others. Um, so I think that took us more time, but you're right. I mean, I think the net was, it wasn't that crisp or that simple to explain Airtable to early customers. You know, I, I think for the select few people who already knew what a relational database was, there was a more immediate click where, hey, this is basically the new FileMaker Pro or Microsoft Access, right? Brought into a, a web-based collaborative era. And, you know, fortunately for us, there were enough of those people out there where I think, you know, they all kind of got very excited about the product. You know, they would talk about it, you know, in forums and uh, on social media and get it adopted within their companies. Um, but I think for a lot of the rest of the potential market, it was something that kind of defied explanation. You know, they would have to show the product and talk about a use case of it before somebody else would understand what it was um, or about. And now we, we probably have the benefit of after 10 years, this market maturing a little bit and 
I think more and more people are aware of this concept of low code and why you might want to build your own internal application. And that really is what we think of Airtable as. I mean, that was our founding vision is not just to build a productivity tool, but really, you know, an app platform. And, you know, for me, the, the inspiration very much came from seeing within Salesforce the potential to build this platform. I mean, Salesforce is, you know, one giant customizable app platform. And even when you buy it for a sales CRM use case, you're really just buying a template on top of this app platform. And the magic of it is that you can customize it to the nth degree. You can take your contacts table, you can take your accounts table, you can take your products table and either add new tables, customize these tables, um, build, you know, even custom interfaces or logic within it. And so it really is this giant app platform that masquerades as a CRM product, right? And in fact, at the time that I was there, they were selling it as an app platform under the name of force.com. And so kind of seeing the great potential of, wow, you can distill all applications into these building blocks that really, you know, if you could make it even more consumerized than what Salesforce has done, you might be able to tap into this larger potential market in a true Clayton Christensen, uh, innovators dilemma sense, go and disrupt that market and create a, you know, a lower end product that's massively more accessible and fills in all of these other use cases where, you know, currently the status quo is to build your app to build what, what should be an app, you know, with Excel or with Google Sheets. And so that's really what we set out to do. And I think there was, you know, at that time, like just an early glimmer of the market opportunity. Now I think it's more clear. I think it definitely is. Yeah, it's uh, eventually caught on. It's like uh, a 10 year overnight trend that you managed to pick up there. So t 10 years ago, you like roughly you started it. Um, obviously, you had an exceptional co-founder. Talk to us about the early team then. Like, what, what was the funding set up? Was it all self-funded to begin with? Did you raise seed? How many people did you hire at first? And as I understand it, you know, it took three years to actually ship essentially the working prototype MVP. And understandable because so complex what you're doing, but that is extreme patience even for the patient. So let's talk about that. You know, thankfully, I think we, we really did enjoy the jury. I think the only way to be that patient is to love what you do in the meantime. Otherwise, I think we would have just decided to, you know, launch something, uh, you know, in a more rushed fashion or, or, or just given up in the middle of it. Right. I mean, my entire first company existed for less than half the time that it took us to even build a V1 for this new company. So dramatically different timescales, right? The chronology was roughly, you know, on day one. I had just kind of started thinking about this product and even maybe mocking up some prototypes of my own. Had done a lot of research on the prior art in the space. And, you know, maybe you even went too far back in time looking at Alan Kay essays from way back when, you know, I think in the 70s or even 60s about, you know, his vision of, you know, a future where end users of computing would not just get simple apps that had been pre-built, but would actually be able to go and, and reach their hands into the machine and create their own software, right? And there was this beautiful vision of what the world would be like if people could go out and, and build their own software, customize their own needs. And so I started doing this research, learning about the space, talking to some um, other entrepreneurs or operators who had worked on prior art. So there were a few companies in the past that had similar echoes to what Airtable would, would be later. I think, you know, it taught me that market timing was really everything, right? Um, and some of these products had just come out maybe too early uh, before you could build such an experience really well in a web-based environment. You know, eventually kind of got to enough conviction about this idea that I felt certain this was what I wanted to work on, you know, made a, uh, you know, even a vision deck and then basically spoke to Andrew, my, my now co-founder about partnering up on this product. Um, and initially we actually even explore a few other ideas just to kind of test 
our working partnership together. So we worked on a few different hack projects. You know, we really wanted to make sure this, this is a, a working partnership that could last, right? I think that's, that's the other thing is being a, a co-founder with somebody is, is really almost like a, a life partnership. I mean, it's like a marriage almost. And, you know, you would never hopefully consider marrying somebody who you didn't, you know, spend some time with getting to know, understanding their values, you know, trying this, this whole thing out. And so we really wanted to kind of, uh, you know, test that, that working relationship together. We knew we could be friends. Um, we had, you know, known each other in college and had even been roommates in San Francisco at one point. We wanted to see what it was like to work together. And so we went off and, and we, uh, worked on a few different hack projects, which was a really fun time actually, and decided, you know, Hey, like we, we, we do enjoy working together. And that's when we, you know, kicked off the working partnership for Airtable. I think we probably spent a year, just the two of us working without raising money. Um, and it was a really fun time. We would just talk, you know, at length about design. We, we both turned out to be very, uh, you know, enamored with, you know, product design and, and really getting the details of this product, right. It had to be something that was delightful and that really distilled a lot of the complexity of a relational database of an app platform into something very usable and intuitive. But there, there was this year long phase where we were working out of each other's, uh, not literal garages, but it was our, our, uh, respective living rooms that we both had roommates. So, you know, we would, uh, show up in the middle of the day, having schlepped, uh, over, uh, Dolores park, which separated our two houses with giant, you know, 27 inch external monitors in our arms and then set up shop in the other person's living room and then rotate. Uh, and that was basically our life for almost a year. We then had a working prototype that we were able to go out, pitch to investors, the idea showed them the prototype, raised a seed round. At that point, our third co-founder Emmett came on, uh, who we also knew from before. And I think it was then just the three of us for quite a few more months, um, before we started hiring more of the, the team. So somebody named Alex, uh, somebody named Doug joined the early team, Patricia, and then the team kind of basically expanded from there until we, we did our, uh, hacker news launch. This was our, our, uh, basically alpha, uh, launch in November of 2014. And then from there, we, we publicly, uh, you know, launched in a full GA in, I think, February or March of 2015. Yeah, so it's really great to hear, again, more details on the patient approach. And I, I think it's great that you're, you're sharing some of the reality or the benefits of being patient too. I think the company could have grown faster. I mean, we could have, if a different entrepreneur was working on Airtable early on, I think there is a plausible alternate path and maybe the company or the product would look different for better or for worse. But I think they could have accelerated the first few years. Um, they could have hired more aggressively. They could have raised money more aggressively. And also, if this company was being built today, as opposed to 10 years ago, I think you could go in and uh, raise much more funding at a much higher valuation than at the time. I mean, just the you know, funding markets have, have evolved uh, quite dramatically over this time frame. But I think actually the biggest bottleneck, honestly, to our ability to scale was my own personal skill, right? You know, I just lacked the experience when we first set out to build this company to go and aggressively scale the company, you know, without probably making a lot of mistakes. And some of those mistakes would be very expensive if we were dealing with a larger team and more, you know, more funding right from the get-go. So I like to think of the, those early years of the company as not only, you know, a great time for us to be patient and to get a lot of details right in the product. I think some of those details had to be done in a slow, deliberate way, way with a small team. You know, you can't, you can't necessarily parallelize the design and development of a really detail oriented product. But I think a lot of that time also was helpful in just giving me the, the kind of time and space and, and probably Andrew and the rest of the team as well, like the time and space to learn and develop our own skills as operators of this, this eventual business. 
Let's talk about raising money then. So how how many rounds have you done in total? Like roughly, if you can remember how much money raised in total, how consistent is your story? Obviously, the the vision and the end point might expand through time, but how consistent are the, the main things? This is what we're building and this is the, what the future looks like. Yeah, so the, the vision has stayed remarkably consistent from day one. You know, I, I think you could go back to our 2012 vision deck that those slides I put together to organize my thoughts before then, uh, you know, convincing Andrew to, to partner up together on, on this venture. And I think all of the, the same points mostly ring true today. I mean, we talked about how our goal was not just to build a productivity tool or a project management tool, but to really democratize software creation, right? And it cited, you know, these Alan Kay essays, um, and, uh, and it even talked about the potential kind of sequencing of the business. So at the time we thought, you know, we would start building a relational database with a really intuitive interface, right? A spreadsheet-like interface. Um, it would be web-based, collaborative, et cetera. And then eventually we would build a logic layer where you could create automations, which we now have done, right? You can go and define triggers and actions within Airtable so that if, you know, a new record is created and meeting these conditions, you can do something else. And then we've actually also started working on, you know, the final piece of our vision, which relates to customizing the interface of Airtable. So be able to create custom interfaces on top of the product. So Literally the roadmap that we portrayed in this 2012 deck has just taken, you know, a very long time, almost a decade to play out. Um, but we have stayed pretty true to it because I think we did have so much time at that time to really think about what does this product look like, you know, eventually, how do we go and unlock the full potential of this idea? And even from a business standpoint, how do we sequence uh, monetization? How do we think about a freemium model and how do we eventually go from SNBs to moving into enterprise, which we've also done. So. That part has been really, really consistent. On the fundraising side, truth be told, I think some of our early investors didn't fully understand the idea, especially when we went out for our seed route. This was a year into building the product. We hadn't yet launched. It was just Andrew and I. And when we went out and, and pitched seed investors, mostly you know, people that we had already gotten to know through our networks in the past, I think they ultimately put in money just because they kind of liked us as founders, maybe believed in, in our ability to execute. But I think at the time, people probably got very confused at this idea of low code and democratizing the, the building of apps. You know, whereas I think today the market is much more aware, right? So I think investors are all pretty savvy about this low code space and our fundraising history kind of just evolved along with the market over this time frame. So early on, we raised, I think, 3 million in our seed round. This was super early. And at the time it was, you know, we thought that was a lot of money, probably more than, you know, most companies would have raised in a seed round. But we wanted to almost overcapitalize to ensure that we had the, the luxury of time, that we wouldn't have to be rushed in terms of launching our product or, or making kind of premature decisions. Uh, we wanted to just have as much time as possible to really get the product right and do things on our terms, right? We then launched the product in early 2015. At that point, we raised our Series A, which at the time was, I think, a medium-sized round, uh, around $8 million of funding, uh, which again, just kind of extended our runway. The product, the business, had started, you know, getting some organic adoption from that launch and was, you know, starting to compound, but it certainly wasn't a runaway success by any means at that point. So still pretty early. And then subsequently we raised our B round at a point when the company was starting to inflect, we had started monetizing, showed some promising signs there. Our C round came after I think, you know, the, the monetization engine was, was already provably working. So I think at that point we were on path to, to scaling to 20 million in ARR after having, I think, been at, you know, basically zero or, or less than one as recently as, as 18 months prior. So 
very, very quick speed to kind of go from effectively zero revenue to, to 20 million in ARR, which helped validate the company and, and uh, get us our, our first unicorn valuation. And then from there, uh, we raised a series D right at the beginning of COVID. And that was more of a preemptive round to create some buffer to, to insulate us from whatever might happen uh, in the world with, with COVID. And then our series B, which was uh, just a few months ago this year, uh, was our latest round. And basically I think is a true growth round in the sense that I think we now have an executive team. Uh, we have clear conviction about how to execute what our growth levers are over the next few years, where we need to start making more aggressive investments from a product standpoint and from a, a sales and marketing standpoint. And so, you know, this is probably honestly the first year where we have really clear purpose for that capital in the, you know, in the prior rounds, we kind of raised more than probably we needed to, but it gave us a buffer. And now I think we actually know how to deploy this capital and put it towards, you know, more meaningful growth. Well, I'd love to know. I'd just love to tackle, um, you know, the psychological side of building a business this big. So how do you uh, up your game personally? You know, what are the kind of psychological emotions you go through? Are you ever full of doubt? Are you, do you have these sort of human emotions or are you full of confidence because you surround yourself with all the right people? I heard this term recently because I'm always fascinated asking people about imposter syndrome, something that I suffer whilst building my startup. But my co-founder has the exact opposite problem of me, which we call the imposer syndrome, where he, he never doubts himself. So <laughs> I'd love to know what you relate to more and how some of those... Uh, 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 human elements have been tackled during your journey? Yeah. I mean, to me, it's, there's a slightly different spectrum that, that I would define, which is pessimism and optimism. I think it's probably very correlated, you know, optimistic people, you know, fall into that, uh, imposer, you know, kind of category of the pessimistic people probably lean towards the, uh, the imposter syndrome. But I think of it in those terms, because I would actually consider myself weirdly both an optimist and yet also like a very pragmatic realist at the same time, right? So I think, you know, it's not that I fall in the middle, but it's somehow that I'm able to kind of almost maintain being at, at both ends of that spectrum. Um, on the one hand, I think you need to be able to see all the good things that could happen to this business or else, you know, if you only focus on, you know, the risks and the bad things that could happen, of course, there's always a way for every startup, for every company, you know, even established Fortune 500s could go out of business, right? Or it can become irrelevant. And so you know, there's always a way that you can, you know, see the, the worst case scenario in it. It's very, you know, it's a very plausible outcome, right? So I think you have to kind of suspend disbelief or at least believe in the best possible outcome and have this conviction that like you can make it and, and follow that successful path while at the same time being honest with yourself about all the risks ahead. I think it's also unhealthy to be so optimistic that you ignore all the very real risks that you should be addressing and mitigating, right? Um, if you're worried about you know, will this product be able to monetize instead of just ignoring it? I think, you know, to start to do early pricing experiments or to, you know, look into and learn how do other companies do this? Or in our case, like I had zero marketing and sales background um, before, you know, entering into to Airtable other than briefly doing a, a sales boot camp as a, as a voluntary exercise while I was at Salesforce, which, uh, you know, was a really fun experience. And, you know, I probably learned a little bit from that, but, you know, coming into Airtable really didn't know how to take a product like this to market other than launching and hoping that we would organically get traction. And, you know, thankfully we did, but I think I also had to learn because I recognized, you know, hey, you know, not understanding go-to-market, not having a long-term go-to-market strategy and not knowing how to execute on enterprise sales is going to be a major vulnerability for us in the long term. And, and just like every other company, whether it was Slack or Dropbox, et cetera, like this is probably, 
an evolution we're going to have to make. And so, you know, instead of ignoring that risk, I went out and really just, you know, I think approached it with this, this, uh, great degree of humility and, and, uh, and a growth mindset to try to learn as much as I could. Yeah. I guess I'd love to know before, uh, before we have to wrap up, cause, uh, time has flown by, you've raised over $600 million in funding. Um, uh, how, how much of that do you think has been wisely spent? So the good news is we haven't spent, uh, most of it, you know, so that the vast majority of our funding, you know, that we've raised in all time is still in our bank account. Um, so on the flip side, I would actually argue that, you know, we probably should have found better ways to deploy the capital more, you know, and, and sooner. I think what we've now developed is I think a maturity as a business to understand the mechanics of our business model, right? Here's the levers we can invest into. Here's how we can go and scale up these teams at R&D. Here's how we can go and hire more salespeople and get, you know, pretty predictable ROI or, or have confidence that, you know, it's going to be money well spent. Um, in the earlier days of the company, we didn't really have that, that clarity. And I think part of what's, um, you know, what's changed is that we now have an executive team. We have uh, a more mature business. We're more confident about, you know, how our funnel works, right. And, and how our revenue model works. And so I think now we are going to start more aggressively deploying that capital because we we've developed this model that, that gives us more confidence that if we hire this incremental head in our enterprise engineering team, we're going to get real product value out of it. That is going to help us land more enterprise customers as an example, right? Or if we spend this much money in marketing, we're going to get this many leads or this many new signups that will convert into revenue as a result. So it took us, uh, maybe as much as 10 years to figure out how to spend money, um, as, as, uh, silly as that sounds. But this is kind of the, the first time where we feel like we know how to deploy that larger scale of capital. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And what, what would you say has been your biggest challenge scaling then? The market has heated up a lot. So in the early days, you know, we really didn't have that many setbacks as a company. I mean, you know, in many ways, like we were in this, uh, you know, kind of sanctuary of a market where we didn't have to face competition. We just built product, you know, our, our product features and you know, shipped it to customers and organically people adopted us more and more. And we really were, I think the, the only company that was doing anything similar to this genre of low code app platform, especially that could be adopted by end users as opposed to being IT deployed. Um, and I think now I would consider us still the only true, you know, bottoms up low code app platform. Um, but there are other products that are now starting to, uh, compete with us, right? Um, even the project management tools. Uh, I think are starting to position themselves at least as more of a low code play. Um, and they're building more customization options into their product, even if they started out more task oriented. And so the bigger challenge that we face now is that we aren't the only game in town. And, you know, whereas in the past we had the luxury of, of not having to convince our customers to use us over the competition, there are other products now that, that people are going to consider it. So for us now to kind of build for the first time, the muscle of you know, competitive resilience. Like, what does that mean from a product roadmap standpoint? How do we think about our product to make sure that, you know, we're never going to be competition obsessed or more competition obsessed than we are customer obsessed. So our, our primary mandate is to focus on creating value for our customers. But in doing so, we also need to, you know, step back and be able to succinctly describe Airtable as a differentiated product from the competition, right? And so I think building that, that muscle, that discipline for the first time really is a challenge. Amazing. Thank you so much, Howie. Uh, my final question is, what is the best piece of advice you have to fellow leaders listening in that want to build a big vision, a uh, potentially niche 
thing to explain to people, certainly early on. <laughs> but really want to go the distance and build a category defining business. What's your advice? I think it's trust your well-informed instincts. And what I mean by well-informed is that in my case, I will, you know, I didn't just come up with Airtable, you know, as an idea on a lark. You know, it was really informed by a lot of the research I did, a lot of the observations I had of the the kind of enterprise software landscape of you know, kind of looking back at other companies that had did similar, uh, done similar things. But with that, you know, kind of informed instinct, I then just came to this gut decision or gut conviction that this was a big opportunity. And despite, you know, most investors not understanding it and, and probably most other entrepreneurs also not understanding it, I still, you know, had the conviction to go and, and uh, bet on, on this idea with my, my time and the next, you know, 10 years of my life. Love it. Thanks so much for your time, Howie. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Dave. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Next week on Secret Leaders. We had 9,000 participants that gave us money to build out Ethereum and trust us to carry it out. And in 2015, it launched and the people that uh, were involved in the crowd sale had their wallets filled with, with Ether. And then it promptly proceeded to go from, you know, 25 cents initially up to where it is right now. And from an $18 million market cap up to 500 billion at, at one point. That was Anthony DiOrio, the co-founder of Ethereum, the founder of another startup called Decentral, who made the Jax crypto wallet and formerly the first chief digital officer of the Toronto Stock Exchange. He is a fascinating and lovely man who wants to just feel more secure, literally. He has to walk around with a team of private security guards and he wants to change all that to have the kind of freedom he had before he was one of the wealthiest people in the world. Now find out more about all of this next week on Secret Leaders. This episode was hosted by me, Dan Murray-Serta. It was produced by Rich Martel with editing done by Lower Street Media.